Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. As we move into the new year, I am thinking about people who have moved from one part of their lives to another, who have needed to say goodbye to their old life or their relationships, and have needed to somehow emerge into the world again, or into the world for the first time, and into a safer place, a safer environment with healthier people. And I would love to know how you do it, and how you did it, and what helped along the way. It's so important for the listeners to be able to learn from you. So, as the new year begins, I'll be doing another call-in show. And this one with the theme of new beginnings. So if you'd like to have a question that you'd like me to answer on the show, or if you'd like to kind of give a brief synopsis about what helped you end the old part of your life and start anew, and what challenges you had, and even also what was not helpful, what was not good to do on your way, that's educational as well. Please leave a message at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com if you want to leave a written message, and you can let me know if you'd like me to use your name or not. Or you can leave a voicemail message on my office line at 818-907-0036. If it cuts you off, then just call back and continue your message. And let me know also if you want me to use your name or not. Please do so within the next few weeks so I can put together the call-in show as we begin the new year. Thank you so much. Happy New Year, everybody. Today on the show, we have someone who is actually going to be talking about time, and it is perfectly timed around the end of a year and the beginning of a new year to talk about the passage of time and reclaiming time. So today you're going to hear the first part of my conversation with a woman named Sands Hall. Sands Hall is the author of the memoir, Reclaiming My Decade Lost in Scientology. And what sets Sands' memoir apart from those of other former Scientologists is that the book draws the reader in by detailing what intrigued her first and what she found fascinating and indeed helpful. However, she then demonstrates how this slow indoctrination also makes a participant less able to avoid Scientology's more, as she puts it, insidious aspects. While Sands is very clear that Scientology fulfills all the warning signs attached to cults and indeed, how the demands and confines of Scientology are similar to that of an abusive relationship. Her larger message is how one can reclaim what can seem like lost or squandered years. She's also a singer-songwriter besides a novelist, a theater artist, a professor. Sands brings her affection for the written word and the spoken word. To her discussion. Indeed, she's very clear that diving into words and the truth to be found within them is, ironically, what drew her into Scientology in the first place. 
And we also have kind of an interesting beginning to our conversation. Something happened that was unexpected and unplanned, but it actually highlighted something that happens within groups like Scientology. Here's part one of my conversation with Sans Hall. So today on the show, I am honored to have Sans Hall, who actually wrote a book that it has a wonderful title for a lot of reasons. It's Reclaiming My Decade Lost in Scientology. I love the reclaiming part, and I want to be able to, to talk to you about that. So she's a playwright, a director, an actor, professor emeritus, musician, author, and um, an obvious underachiever. And so what I, what I want to be able to do is to talk to you today about, of course, your time in Scientology. It was a time of great transition in the group, and to talk about that kind of transition, and also the language that's used that is shifted when you're involved in a cultic group, which I talk about a lot, and I, I would love for you to talk specifically about that. And so if you can introduce yourself, and then I want to come to what we were just talking about before that I want to highlight. Thank you, Rachel, so much for having me on this show. I so admire what you're doing with this show. I love where the capital N of indoctrination and just really appreciate that you are bringing attention to the ways we can be um, manipulated with um, language and such. And um, so, yes, I think you did a great job. I am, a, I am indeed all of those things. It may well be that we can talk about that some of my high achieving is that I felt like I kind of squandered a decade of my life and felt I had to kind of make up for it. I've sometimes examined that from time to time. But also, and this is one of the things I like to also address, is I'm one of the things I am in this weird, wonderful way, grateful for that, the reclaiming of that decade, is it really gave me a sense of myself as a scholar, curiously. And um, part of that's been what's, um, what's, in, what's inhabited all of those things of being a director and a playwright and an author and a musician. Wow. Okay. I Yes, I think, you know, I, I hear from a lot of people who uh, do want to make up for lost time or what they consider to be lost time, even though I do think that there is a lot still uh, that can be taken, even from a cultic experience, that, you know, we don't want to, even though I, I hate this expression, I need to find a new one, but we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Still, where there are some things that people get, but one of the things that people sometimes get is this kind of work ethic that's beyond what's healthy, but they're used to being very busy and they're used to doing a lot of things in one day, and then come to find out it's not really what they would have done if they had been given the opportunity to kind of choose their own path. So they use that same kind of work ethic and being busy, busy, but now in a way to really enrich their lives in a way that's in line with who they are and where they want their life to be. And I, I wanted to say also for the people listening, so so Sam's and I were expecting to see each other and do a video chat. And on one of our ends, the video isn't coming through. And so there was a very interesting response that I think people, I think they don't have a sense of how things get interpreted and things get reinterpreted and things get personalized and blame gets put on the person that very often happens 
in abusive relationships and also within cultic groups. So if you can share what your response would have been or the response to video not working would have been in Scientology. Yes, it was very funny because, Rachel, it did occur to me, of course, and I said this, that I have, I had, and it's still a tussle, been indoctrinated to believe if something goes wrong, that's because you did something to pull it in. That's the phrase. I've pulled it in that my camera doesn't work, even though I was in a meeting last week and the camera didn't work either. But that is, <laughs> that is one of those things that I think is so incredibly dangerous and really destructive about um, Scientology and, as you say, cultic groups and abusive relationships mm -hmm. is somehow, I, uh, there's a moment in my book I describe when I am driving home from actually trying to do, be, be doing a Buddhist sit for two days. And I'm driving home from that and there is a terrible car accident, terrible. And the highway, the freeway is a parking lot. We're not moving. And these ambulance, woo, 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 are trying to come up the sides and everything. And I find myself crying and pounding on my steering wheel saying, this is not my fault. Oh, wow. Yes. And I think that's partly, I'm going to say my nature, because of course, I'm going to take responsibility for the fact that those are kind of my thoughts. Mm -hmm. And I think I'd had a healthy dose of chaos theory also plugged in there with Scientology. But there was no question that there was that sense that something I did, if I had done something different, mm -hmm. that crash a mile ahead of me would not have happened. Ahead of me would not have happened. Right. So I think that is an incredibly dangerous thing about these... Um, these groups that you are so beautifully addressing. Thank you for saying that I'm so beautifully addressing them. I think what, what is maddening about that, of course, is the amount of self-blame that is unwarranted, that is overwhelming, that also can make you feel deserving of um, punishment for it or looking down on yourself and also being so much more careful. You know, there's a lot of behavior modification that goes into that. Oh, I have to only think positive things or I have to be more careful so nothing bad happens to anyone else. But what I've noticed, and you can speak more to this because you were, you were there, but usually the leaders don't follow by that same idea. If something bad happens to them, they didn't bring it in. It was someone else's fault. That's correct. No, in that case, in Scientology particularly, that means that there is a suppressive person in the vicinity. And I do think you're pointing out something so interesting. When is it you take blame, take responsibility being the phrase, but it's actually blame. Yeah. And when is it, it's because X, Y, Z is in my vicinity and they made me trip. They made me have the car accident. They made, you know, that's, then I have to say, okay, that person's bad for me. I must disconnect from them. You know? And of course, we all know that there are truths to these things. We often are distracted. We often are in terrible, we're not present because we're thinking about this icky person in our life that's doing or thing in our lives that's doing stuff and we aren't present in the car. So we could say somebody else or that I trip or that 
or that I am, I make a statement I shouldn't make, or I send an email I shouldn't send. All those things, of course, were distracted by oppressive and abusive situations. But I also think it's really interesting what you point out. When is it the practitioner takes it all on themselves? And when does the practitioner cast blame on another? Yeah, because I, I, you know, the, the rules only applying to the followers is what, you know, kind of gets me, gets me so pissed off sometimes about some of these groups, for lack of a better clinical term for that. But I, I, I think, yeah, if you are taught to say something bad happened, that's my fault. And the leader says something bad happened, it's your fault. <laughs> it should be that if it's your fault, that's the teaching that should apply to the person who's teaching you that too, but it doesn't. And when you notice the disparity, I think then you can, you can start to wonder what else you've been taught that really didn't apply to the leadership, but should have, if it really was accurate. Mm -hmm. uh, but you don't notice it when you're in it because mm -hmm. I think you're too busy kind of no, kind of seeing your part in things and being careful. Uh, you need to leave sometimes to have that vantage point to be able to, to notice that dichotomy. If someone who is a Scientologist were to be watching this and I make that point that I pulled it in that the video uh, doesn't work yet, yeah. the agreement there would be Sands is committing a transgression by talking negatively about her church to Rachel on this program that is suppressive, according to them, mm -hmm. because you are against what they are up to. And that is why. And so it is a really insidious way. And you're, it's true. In my, in my memoir, I try to sort of describe this weird helmet you kind of put on that actually, and you screw it into place yourself. No one's making you do it. And that is the, another insidious thing. Like little by little you accept and you have placed this viewfinder in front of your eyes and in front of your thoughts that you allow yourself to see things, even though inside you're going, that's not good. Don't go there. You know, even though that part of yourself is alive and well, you push it down. And to me, that's one of the scariest things when I look back on. I can't believe how many years I did that. Right. And the little by little is something people don't realize because when they hear about a group that has a philosophy that it seems so different and, and uh, people will say, well, how could you have believed it all? Well, you don't know it all. You, you kind of get this uh, little bit and then you take that on and then you get the next little bit. And then you're open to the next little bit, especially at the same time, if you're told that you need to be open to it in order to receive the gifts uh, and to make it worth it and to make your time and all your money worth being there. But I'm, I'm wondering if you can let us know a little bit about, because I know your, your, your memoir touches on this, but a little bit about sort of before predating Scientology, before Scientology, B BS, <laughs> BS. Oh, that's a good one, BS. Um, and uh, what what do you think you were trying to find or trying to heal, trying to go for by getting involved? One of the things I do in the memoir is start at a pretty crisis moment for myself regarding probably to do with my faith, for lack of a better word, 
in the technology that known as the religious technology of Scientology. I try to tr start the reader in that crisis moment. And I, as one reviewer put it, a toggle, I toggle between that and introducing them to my particular set of parents and family. Because I think, and I, this is, I think, proved true from the letters I've received, by being so specific about what pulled me in, it allows a reader to see, oh, I could see, many people have written me, in cer certain part in my life, given a certain circumstance, I can totally see that I would do something similar. So I had a wonderful, bohemian, fabulous upbringing. It was amazing. Um, and they were very cavalier about religion. And I think later in my life, I realized my father was probably as deeply, I call myself a pilgrim. I think he was too. There was that yearning, that search. Um, but it was couched in very intellectual terms. We did not go to church, but we visited them as a tourist, that kind of thing, you know. Mm -hmm. And my parents had many, many uh, mementos and icons of religion all over the house because they thought they were beautiful pieces of art. And we listened to beautiful pieces of music that had been, you know, inspired by Bible stories or whatever. So that was a huge part. But the thing that probably triggered the whole thing was I had a very beloved elder brother. He suffered a terrible head injury. And I think that because I, I think this is an interesting thing, perhaps your listeners understand this, we often, and certainly I'm sure you do, that we often shape ourselves in relationship to a sibling. They help to shape who we are and how we walk in this world. And I had very much shaped myself sort of in comparison to my elder brother. So that when he pretty much doctor reported him, lobotomized himself when he fell off a bridge. He, I, he was so changed and I realized, it took me years, of course, it took writing the memoir to understand that then I wasn't quite sure anymore who I was. And so I think that kind of, it almost spun me into, I called it on the vertigo. It was kind of a dizzy spinning, what am I, who am I, what am I doing? And I think that was a lot of what um, made the Church of Scientology offers tremendous order. I think the growth of fundamental religions and fundamental politics, actually, one of the reasons so attractive is because it offers order. Here's what you do, and this is what will happen. It's not vague. And that order was tremendously appealing to me at that time. Right, right. So here the I talk about the give, being given a formula to follow this exact formula. It's exactly what you're talking about. This tremendous order, right? A plus B equals C, and that's just the way it is. And when you have faced a trauma um, where things suddenly are spinning out of order, then yeah, I think just naturally you're looking for something to kind of contain that and to have things make sense, and to also be able to have something, it seems, have a predictable path where you have, you feel like you have some power over it, because having a sibling go through, go through that, you can feel very powerless, and I'm so, I'm so sorry that that happened, and, and I'm, I'm sure it was a big catalyst. I think of family systems like um, mobiles, where Right, if one part is sort of tugged on, the others sort of are shifting around and kind of 
losing their equilibrium. And so that sounds very much like what happened. It really did. Absolutely. Yes. And there was no question that that, it, as I say, it took me decades to figure that out, but it was, it was a big one when I did see it. I think one of the great things about writing the memoir, Rachel, was I was able to look at that person and have compassion for her. Why did she make these choices? What led her to do that? To actually, and that was a large part of the reclaiming, you know, it's like, and I think also and hugely was I was teaching this myth and fairy tale class at Franklin and Marshall College, where I just from which I just recently retired. And, um, and I really, really sorted into the hero's journey. And um, I had learned that, of course, when I was younger. And I would tell all my students, this is so important for you to understand because we all go through these dark times. It's incredibly important. Yes, your first semester at the college is being a nightmare for you. But if you can look at it as a kind of underworld that you're in and you're, there's a gift down there for you to get and you'll return to the known world with that gift, you can, you can, that's a great way to approach your life. As Joseph Campbell says, he thinks a great life is one hero's journey after another. And I would say, Sands, you're really good at lecturing about this. <laughs> <laughs> Could you possibly apply that to your own situation? And I was like, no, those people have hero's journeys. I just had a big error. Uh-huh. You know, but little by little, it was, I just thought you got to, you should examine that. And that was a huge help to see it in that particular structure that the hero's journey offered. Right. I wish I had had a professor like you when I was in school who <laughs> could say those things and really understand the experience. Um, but yes, applying it to yourself is a whole other story. And let me just say, this is why I love interviewing people like you, because there are so many people who will say, oh, I, you know, I'm I'm too smart to get involved in uh, something like this. I would never fall for it. And when I'm speaking with someone who is bright, who is so capable, who is saying, actually, no, this doesn't have anything to do with capability out in the world. This has this is where something reached in to a need that you had at the time, and I think capitalized on it that is the important piece for me where they really took advantage of that openness or that hurt inside of you or that need that you had at the time. I think you've just, you know, hit that one on the head. I've had friends uh, who've said, you know, with disdain, that would, I would never. And I just, I just, I have to, of course, stay quiet because who knows they've had their life. I've had mine, but there is that sense of, you just can't say that. There are so many ways that things unfold in this life and you never know. And also, I think this is a very clever thing. I don't think this is unique to Scientology, but this is what they do, that when they stand out there with their clipboards and they ask people, are you really happy? Which is a very clever question. First of all, let's start with happy and then let's go to really. I mean, are you really happy? You know. And so if you take that personality test and you go inside the building with them and they're going to then tell you what's come up from your personality test, well, almost always what comes up in the personality test is some problem you're having somewhere. And in the world of Scientology, that's called your ruin. Mm -hmm. Well, we have a course for that. 
doctor, you know, if you take this course of auditing or our form of counseling, that will solve that. If you take this course in communication or in finances or in who is a suppressive person, that will solve that. And in many cases, there are efficacious and useful items in there. And that gets back to that point you made, which is the little by little. Oh, well, that makes sense. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. That's actually a useful piece of information. Right. Deeper and deeper you get like the frog in the hot water. Exactly. And 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 not that I, I'm trying to be uh, critical of friends or acquaintances who say, oh, you know, that would never happen to me. But what I have noticed is it's the ones who say that would never happen to me uh, where they actually do find themselves in situations um, where they're taken advantage of because they think they were above it and they don't know how to really look for it. And um, they really do think it couldn't happen to them. So I think it is important actually for everyone walking around to know that, you know, Scientology didn't invent these techniques. They got them from business. I mean, people are taken advantage of all the time and it's good for everyone to know that everyone has the possibility and the capability of being taken advantage of. And it's not an insult, it's just human nature. Uh, and so it, it helps know what to watch out for then. Really, really does. I mean, I'm struck by that, you know, I am a pretty dyed-in-the-wool liberal, and I think of myself as a fairly educated person, and I'm capable of critical thinking, and especially because of Scientology, I'm very much on my toes about being able to think critically. And so I'm really aware, even when an article in a newspaper is supposedly a news, not opinion or commentary, but news, that they will still sometimes use a verb that tilts the reader. It's sometimes very, very subtle, you right. know, but even saying a word like um, smear in relationship to Maria Yovanovitch, you know, in the, during the uh, recent congressional hearings, right. smear, literally, I know then that writer is on my side. I mean, I'm on that side too, but that side is uh, the other one, rather than alleged mistreating, right. that kind of language. And to be that alert to the way we are manipulated for good and ill all the time, just to be conscious, to be as alert and present and conscious as we can be to mm -hmm. that seems to me one of the great blessings of being involved in a cult because you'd never, I mean, I'm so wary now and very careful, you know? Yes. Oh, I, I love that whole idea of, of listening for the language that's used. I think about that and I, you know, I, I have talked about this on the show that sometimes when I'm reading a study, I will, I, before I read the study, I'll see who funded it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. then if I don't recognize the name, I'll do research on who funded it. And it's the whole, um, I call it the, uh, you know, um, uh, tomatoes kill people study because anyone who eats a tomato dies. Well, most people have had a tomato and ketchup or whatever else. Uh, so it's also going to happen that people are going to die. And it was probably funded by, you know, the mustard corporation, right? Like I, I will just sort of bring that up that, that that can happen all the time. And I think not only in those words, but in the absolute ideas, especially, I think that's what, what, what's offered, like you were saying in, in Scientology, this, this tremendous order. This happens because of this. This is an absolute statement. And then you don't have to kind of worry anymore. You can just kind of sit back and go on the ride. Yeah. And like, except that your mind 
won't actually let you do that. (laughs) And I don't know really if my, and one of the things I try to talk about in the memoir is how beloved my friends were that were also Scientologists. We had a beautiful group and we, for better, well, for worse, obviously, but we supported each other in our endeavors and obviously in our Scientology belief. And I have no idea, well, I do now uh, because a couple of them also left, but did they have the kinds of, were they racked with the kind of doubt on a daily basis that I was? I mean, I could never settle. I could never, and that, to live like that, Rachel, and I, I've had just enough of a tinge of being around an abusive relationship to understand that same thing. Why do we stay? What is it that keeps us in? To me, that is just, it's a diabolical little thing inside of our systems because it's us, you know, it's the individual making those choices and making those choices. And it was so hard to leave. It was so hard to leave. I was going to ask about you leaving. I was also going to to ask first if if that's okay, because I do certainly want to hear about you leaving and also what's been hard since and what's been helpful since. But because you were there at such a dynamic and, and transitional time, uh, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, because I know, you know, we're condensing 10 years and also the years before and the years after into a very short amount of time. So I hope we get to talk again, but just for today, um, what did you notice? Was there a shift that you could feel as the leadership was shifting while you were there? The answer is absolutely. When I first joined or became little by little, the frog in the hot water involved with Scientology, it it was the mid 80s and Hubbard was in hiding, though I didn't know that then. Um, but he was his he had sort of established this thing and things unrolled. And I found it to be so much less scary than I had been led to believe it was and kind of charming in a kind of a way I recognize, kind of almost a bohemian, funky 50s kind of way. Things were just, I would just say gentle. And it just felt their kindness abounded. There wasn't a sense of that being uh, haunted and tattled on and all these things, which uh, have since, I believe, since. So then Hubbard dies. And I kind of hope, frankly, that Scientology, like a store whose owner has died, is going to close up shop. I mean, I really was surprised at the yearning for that, that I would be, quote unquote, free. And I remember thinking that. Wow. And that's when I began in my memory, and it's my memory, that there were a lot more, there have always been big events, but all of a sudden they were a lot more glossy. All of a sudden, the kind of rather funky presentations of uh, that were, it was perfectly fine. They were adequate, but suddenly all of the videos and the audio become top notch and the advertising is top notch. You can, you can tell that it's terrific, but it's also really scary. And I, all of a sudden, well, gradually you felt too, that you kind of needed to show up at those events. Whereas before, so I, you know, came because you wanted to, or you came because your friends went. But now you, you kind of wondered if someone might be walking around keeping. T- there's no way. I mean, there's you know thousands of people in those days at those things. And then 
I had no idea when I actually left the church um, that so many people with Hubbard's death had left. I didn't find any of that out because there was no internet then. And you were completely, completely encouraged, forbidden, whatever the word would be. You were not, you were encouraged not to read anything that might wonderful Hubbard word interbulate you. Right. Yes. Interbulate you. And of course, because reading about icky things would interbulate me, I would, I got very very interbulated (laughs) reading that stuff. So I didn't know that there were many people distressed at the changes. I mean, I think Scientology was always a cult and it was always icky, but there was just, I think, this sort of weird little time when it was just like going along, going along without Mm -hmm. these massive shifts and and enforcements that I think David Miscavige brought in with him. Um, Just to me, amongst the most startling to me is that we know, Scientologists know, uh, I want to say we knew, however, that the, whatever the tense of that sentence could be, those who've studied Scientology know that the one thing Hubbard says is no one changes a period or a comma in his work, in his Mm -hmm. text. Mm-hmm. And one of the things going to start researching my book, and I have a lot of endnotes in my book. I love endnotes, not just because they're the source material, but also because you can put little anecdotes and stories in there that aren't necessarily, you know, for the bigger thing. Right. I went to check my sources because I had a old stuff and I wanted to make sure that I was quoting it correctly. And a lot of it had been changed. And what I find remarkable is how many Scientologists who read this famous thing called keeping Scientology working had to agree in some sort of mind boggling way that it was okay for Miscavige to change Hubbard's words. And I mean, I'm not saying that one shouldn't change Hubbard's words. I mean, okay, but that he had put such a stricture on it and then it was changed. So that sort of thing I find in terms of the changes in the church, I can say more, but the authoritarian quality of it above all, I think, is the most scary. So, you know, it's reminding me also of a, a woman I've known for many, many years who was the captain of one of the ships of, you know, Hubbard's Navy. Yes. Um, and if people don't know the history of all of that, it's really good to good to see how he, um, well, he has a whole uh, naval history uh, and then wanted to be someone who could create his own Navy that he could be in charge of. And a woman who was the captain or sub-captain of one of the ships remembers laying out on the deck at night. Uh, he was drinking rum, I think it was. And he'd be looking up at the stars and talking about all the different beings that lived on those different stars or different planets. And he would imitate the language that he knew they spoke up there. Now, when you think about that, you think, okay, that's very odd. But it didn't, it, it's the same thing that you're talking about, that it didn't portray that kind of um, kind of snake in the grass, evilness. It was just odd. Uh, and there, that was interesting because she used the word charming also. Um, you just kind of went along with it, but it didn't feel scary. Right. And then, yes, there were things happening at the time that did still feel scary because for some people it wasn't safe, even from the beginning of Scientology, even with Ellen Hubbard, of course, but things, yeah, the, the volume was turned up on the intensity 
and also people having to really watch their backs. And I think a lot of people who who went through that transition and then left after Miscavige was in charge have dealt with their heart racing so often and still having that feeling of who's going to notice, who's going to listen in, who's going to read their emails, you know, when are they going to ever feel that they're fully safe? I remember going to, I had, I had applied and been accepted to the Iowa Writers Workshop in Iowa at the University of Iowa. And it was my second year because the first year I kind of stayed connected to my friends, but my second year of that program, I really made the break. And I went to a public library to check out a book called L. Ron Hubbard, Messiah or Madman. And I get the little numbers and I walk up into the stacks and I stop dead, Rachel, and I literally raise both hands up as I feel someone aiming a gun at my back. And I know simultaneously that that is no way there's happening. That is the weird thing about the human mind, right? Mm-hmm. You totally know there's no one in this library holding a gun mm-hmm. aimed at my back. But I kept my hands up and turned around, right? Of course, nobody was there. But that is, the, and that was really new to me. I had not felt that while in the church, but I sure felt it afterwards. It was very, very, very scary. It is fascinating that you had that experience because the fear induction is so um, handicapping and paralyzing in those moments. And you can get a sense of it as soon as you have that experience. And it's not tied to your reality at the moment, even though it feel that way. And I know I'm, I get harassed by Scientology a lot. So it is unfortunately full part of my reality, but I was going to actually ask you about that since writing the book. Well, I, it's very interesting to me because I try very hard, Rachel, with my book to bring the reader along with the things I found interesting and useful so that to some degree, to use the word of this program, I try to indoctrinate Mm -hmm. the reader as I was indoctrinated, so that they can actually follow why I might have been intrigued. While I also am always very clear that I am out and I disapprove, right? It's just, but it's very, so I tried bring them along on that idea so that they can actually travel that distance with me. And then very little by little see, wow, so if you are accepting this, you're accepting this other thing, right? So this way of trying to get across to the reader exactly that sense of what's so intriguing. And um, so to some degree, I wonder if that approach has kept the church from necessarily being really nasty to me. I almost didn't publish. I was so worried about that, frankly. But here is something that they did. Was it interesting? The, the, The hardback had the title Flunk Start, Reclaiming My Decade Lost in Scientology. Mm -hmm. And I loved it. My editor loved it. And it was perfect because the book is about so much more than simply leaving Scientology. Mm -hmm. It is about the way we flunk in our lives. We have errors. We screw up. And then how do we find our way to start again? That is what the book is trying to address. And you know, letters have let me know that that's, a, that's something I'm so pleased the book is doing. So what they, it's very curious to me, and I just, this is so convoluted that you can say that it's probably because I was a Scientologist at one point, 
I get a letter from an independent bookseller through Amazon telling me that he can't sell my book because they, he's been approached by Bridge Pubs, which is the publication wing of Scientology, telling him that my book is in violation of copyright, so he can't sell it. So he is writing me to say, um, I can't sell that book under Amazon's laws because there's this complaint's been lodged against it. And I just want to give you a heads up that Amazon will no longer sell it either. Wow. Amazon stopped selling my hardback. You could get it in the Kindle version. You could get it in the audio, which I was lucky enough and delighted enough to read myself. It was still. Mm -hmm. But it was a year after the book had been published, Rachel, and already up on Amazon was the new cover, which was simply reclaiming my decade lost in Scientology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Start is a phrase used in Scientology course rooms. So I think they were trying to law. I this is me being convoluted. They saw the new cover, and I think maybe they thought, well, if we can get a lot of dudgeon all stirred up, we could say, well, that's why Sands took and her publisher took the name Plunk Start off the tie off the front. But I decided to just lie doggo. I did not do anything. I wrote to my publisher. My publisher's lawyers got on it, and a few months later right about the same time that the paperback came out, the hardback is back for sale again. So who, as I say, that's a really convoluted piece of logic. But for me, I just wasn't going to give them the pleasure of getting upset about it, you know? And um, that was, that's the most they screwed around with me. Oh, okay. So far, so good. I mean, <laughs> I think I'm glad to hear that. And I like the idea of just not giving them the power of getting upset about it. I mean, that's something a lot of us in this field just have to do because it's the whole not letting the bullies win kind of mentality. And and that's a really important part of this. But there is a history on Amazon of taking uh, books away from being able to be available to the public that are about Scientology, like John Atek's book, A Piece of Blue Sky was taken off Amazon list um, by threats by Scientology. So there, I mean, there is a history about that. And that's why I was so nervous to publish. I was. Yeah. But I'm really glad you just found a way to just keep going with it uh, because you have the right to tell your story. Right. And I'm very clear too, and this may be for another conversation, that that was part of the reclaiming that there were things there that I am glad that I, ha I mean, I pretended for a decade, a decade of my life hadn't happened. I was so mortified. But when I came to go looking at those years again, it was like, well, no, look at what you have here. Look at what you have here. Look at what you actually learned here. Look at what you can apply from that. That is actually useful. Look what you know because of that negative experience. That's the hero's journey stuff, I suppose. You know. I love that idea because I think we we are all an accumulation of our experiences, good and bad. And so we want to be able to find a way to put the things that get in our way somewhere else so that they are not roadblocks, but use the information from those experiences to help guide us or to keep us safer. And just as you were talking before about having your antenna up about certain things. So in that way, it's a valuable experience. And sometimes, you know, learning the hard way, but still it's a valuable experience to know what to watch out for. I'm, I'm wondering also, and again, I hope we get to talk again. I hope this is a part one, but one of the things that I think is a really helpful part of 
the conversation that I have with anyone on the show is what has helped you since leaving? What have you needed? Because sometimes people need to know what they need, what is helpful to them, but also friends, family, professionals want to be able to offer what people need. So what has been helpful to you? What's really ironic, and I do make the point in my book that to some degree, you know, I love my family dearly, but there was indoctrination there as well. Of course, I think families give us indoctrination. And the indoctrination that uh, that Scientology and my parents shared was that psychiatry was bad. So getting therapy was very interesting. It took a very long time, Rachel, for me to reach out to that particular. And when I did, it felt like the most dangerous thing I could possibly do. And I was rumping up not only since Scientology's bullshit, excuse my language, oops, BS, but my family's, right? So there was this sense of that. So that was a biggie. So ha- I, a lot of it, what helped me a lot at the time of leaving, frankly, was Buddhism because it was sitting with my breath and my thoughts. That was very, very, very important to understand how quickly thoughts just will go away from you and, and to, to keep your, on that, just keeping your focus on your breath for even a minute, right? It was a great discipline and incredibly useful to me. Um, and then, you know, as I say, I spent a decade almost pretending that a decade hadn't happened. But when I began to turn my eyes to it, of course, a lot of it was finding therapy when my wonderful therapist, Ginger, whom I adore. And, um, and being able to talk not only about Scientology so much by that point, but really the thought processes it had, I was still operating off of that had to be carefully pulled apart like a, but like a, like a delicate little silver chain in your jewel box. You just had to undo that knot that you could see was at the basis of that really wrong thinking. That was incredibly useful to me. Really valuable was reading about other people's experiences. One of the reasons I wanted to write my own book is how useful I'd found the work of others. Right. I mean, we we have our training and our sensitivities and what we've learned from our families of origin and that are going to sometimes uh, interfere with what we are learning in a cult and sometimes piggyback what we learn. And so it just it makes it harder for us to then sometimes feel safe to do the things that we need to do to act on our behalf and take those steps. And yes, I've had plenty of people in my office who are, they just break out into a sweat and a lot of former Scientologists who need to have the door open in my office while I'm working with them. And just because they've been taught that, you know, therapists are going to do awful things to them. It's so, so sad because you see how long it took them to just, just come to get the help that they wanted or needed or deserved to be able to access without fear. Um, And I think also, you know, being able to realize that you can make a lot of progress, a lot of progress, and then every once in a while in your life, you're going to have these moments like with the video working or not working, where you have an automatic thought and you say, oh, there is that. That is still there because I was introduced to that as, um, as an exact formula. That's right. And it's true. It's, Absolutely. True. It's the truth. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so I think to, 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 for people to be patient with themselves, that it takes some time to undo that. And it doesn't mean necessarily that 
you're still in all of the programming. It just means that our our brains have the capability of holding on to information when it is given to us in a repeated way, and also sometimes with some fear um, induction into it, where we feel like it, it would be uh, somehow dangerous for us to not believe that. And that's just who we are. And it doesn't mean that we haven't made progress. No, I think one of the most valuable things is to be able to recognize and laugh, you know, <laughs> to be able to go, oh my God, I'm having that thought. Yeah. That thought is in there. It was great to just say that out loud to you, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah. And thank you for indulging me because when you said that, I said, oh, let, can we please put that on the show? It's so real. It's so just in real time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I know we're... We're done with our time, but th- there are many more days of talks that we could have. And so I, again, I hope that we get to continue, but I, I want to thank you for getting your message out there and also using your experiences to help kind of normalize that experience for people, but also to teach people again with that word reclaiming that you don't have to feel that something is going to be lost forever and then you're always going to be sidelined you're always going to be going down the wrong path that it doesn't have to be that way and it's really wonderful when you see that it's not going to be that way and I'm very happy for you that you're having that experience I would love to continue chatting with you Rachel your questions are so lively and fun and it's been very fun to see your face even though you've <laughs> and thank you very much and I appreciate that about the reclaiming has been important and I I, it, I love your word normalizing I want people to know it's just not that unusual and there is a way to to get to claim our lives and say okay I did that next exactly because what does it mean it means you're human yes right and there you go and uh, there's nothing wrong with that and so um to be continued to be continued okay good to talk to you one more thing before you go during my conversation with sans hall today she highlighted something that i hear a lot about which is when she said little by little you accept and you screw on the viewfinder when things are built on kind of a slow an incremental way along a continuum, as my colleagues Pat Ryan and Joe Kelly talk about, you say yes to the next thing only. You agree to do one more thing or consider one new belief or one new teaching, and then suddenly you're following along with many new ways of thinking or behaving, and it just keeps building from there until you've gone through almost a total transformation and all you had originally agreed to was one thing and then another thing to go to a service or a workshop or a class or a first date or just check something out without you thought making a commitment slowly from there you don't sign up for 10 years within a group and the loss of that time the loss of your savings, saying goodbye to all of your family and friends outside of the group right away. And you kind of, one by one, step by step, realize 
that after a while, you have suddenly had a lot of time pass and you've gone through a lot of changes and you have all new people in your life and you said goodbye to so much. We don't clue in on things that are incremental as much as we do when they're sudden and in large numbers all at once and drastic. So as Sands Hall says, little by little, you accept and you screw on the viewfinder. Her reference to a viewfinder reminds me of an experiential workshop I did with some middle school students who were having some trouble managing their emotions and felt that people were against them and often felt that things were depressing or hopeless. And after talking about their feelings and how they affect how they see everything, we came up with an idea together, a plan, where we would make these decals on stickers and put them on glasses that just had clear lenses without any magnification. And after they put the decals on, they looked at everyone and everything through the words that were on the lenses. So they looked at everything and everyone through the word anger or through the word anxiety or through the word sadness or through the word hopeless. And that is what cults do actually and controlling partners do. They have you look at everything and everyone else and often look at yourself through a negative lens. And you can start to think your vision of things is real and true instead of a filter they have put over your eyes like those decals so you are no longer able to see things and see people clearly as they really are. And this is often why people get so frustrated with themselves where they say that they were able to notice a charlatan from a mile away in other areas of their lives, but not in this area and not this time. Or they were able to be aware enough to look for proof and to get substantiation that someone was telling the truth, but here they no longer questioned and no longer asked and no longer researched and found out the information they needed to find out about in order to make a fully educated decision about getting more involved because what happens is that while you accept little by little and screw on the viewfinder, you are also often encouraged individually and through social psychological pressure around you to feel that questioning any or all of it would seem kind of very unattractive for you. You'll look like someone who is a fish out of water. You'll be looked down upon. And no one wants to be the lone critical voice in the room the only one who seems to have questions or doubts or the only one who seems to voice them. And you'll be taught that none of the wonderful things that you've been promised are going to work if you're not open to them. We've talked before on the podcast about how the mind, the critical eye, critical thinking, questioning are seen as evil or as counterproductive and get in the way of people's emotional development or spiritual awakening in these groups. But I would be very cautious about getting into any kind of organization or any kind of relationship that hinders your ability to use your critical thinking. Your critical thinking is your safety net. And your spiritual development and your emotional well-being and your critical mind should not at all be mutually exclusive. They should be able to work together. They can work together and they should be allowed. Then, when you put on the viewfinder, you can sometimes forget that you're looking through an altered lens, 
that you were manipulated to put on, and those are not actually your views. That's not the way you would look at things. That's not the way you would assess things. That's not the way you would normally look at the world or at yourself. Anais Nin said, we don't see things as they are. We see them as we are. So part of the goal of undoing the programming is remembering how you used to see things. And if you were born and raised in a controlling household or controlling group, you want to think about how you want to view things possibly in a way that you've never had an opportunity to see things before. You get to put on your own glasses. You even get to look at yourself in the mirror and see someone you can be happy with, someone who is enough the way he or she is, someone who does not deserve being mistreated or controlled or abused, someone who can trust herself or himself. And you get to look at other people and evaluate them based upon their behavior and based upon their heart and based on the evidence before you, not just based on how you were taught to view them, so that you don't have to look down on people who are not part of the group anymore, and you don't have to distrust those who your partner doesn't like and has wanted you to start distancing yourself from. You get to see things through a clearer lens, and that is truly liberating. And it's also going to be a lens that's much more accurate. But trusting that your own view of things is going to be much more accurate is a huge challenge for people coming out of these situations. They often have learned not to trust what they see on their own and to wait until someone else, someone higher up in the hierarchy, tells them what they are seeing and tells them how to interpret it and tells them how to feel about what they're seeing. This is truly an uphill battle, and especially if you assume that you are wrong, if you assess something with your own eyes, well, remember that the reason someone controlling you wanted you to believe that you couldn't trust yourself was because they were threatened by how accurate you would be, not by how inaccurate you would be at your assessment. Manipulators take away things for very strategic reasons. And the things they take away first are the things that threaten their overall power over you. So even if you don't believe me that your vision of things can be at times truly spot on, use the fact that manipulative partners and cult leaders work very hard to make you not trust the way you see things. So that should be proof enough that it's a powerful skill, that it's a skill you really have, and it's a skill they want you to forget that you have. I look forward to having you hear the rest of my conversation with Sands Hall the next episode. Talk to you next week. I'm excited to say that this podcast is now available on additional platforms. If you want to listen to Indoctrination, it's available for download on the NPR Radio Public app, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. We now have a big library of content that you can access with any donation. And subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.